If you've got a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're still in the Beatitudes and uh, kind of chugging right along here. And we're actually going to finish the Beatitudes out in several weeks with um, my dad. Tracy White is going to finish this section out in a few weeks, and so Chrissy and I will be out of town for a wedding. But um, Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to do like we did last week and, uh, and, and give you guys an opportunity to read these scriptures with me. So I'm going to, I'll read verse 2, and then you guys come in with verse 3, and we're going to read verses 3 through 11 together. And it'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What I want to do this morning is, uh, and, and our, our focus again today is going to be verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, what I want to do is, I'm going to, I'm going to discuss the relationship between this verse and what I like to call the meta narrative of history, of redemptive history from the beginning of time to the end of time. How this verse fits in and kind of encompasses all of that. Um, Then I'm going to discuss what it means to be pure in heart. I'm going to discuss the impossibility of the requirement that's laid out in this verse because of our sinful nature. Um, I'm going to discuss the action that must be taken to fix this problem. And then I want to discuss how this verse closes out, what it means to see God now and for eternity. So that's kind of where we're going if you're like a visual map type person that's where we're, where we're going. So let's pray, and, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for um, what it can do to us if we, will, uh, if we will simply trust and believe it. God, I pray that you would come now and do what only you can do, and that is open our eyes to see Jesus, open our ears to hear your word, open our hearts to receive your word with gladness. God, we thank you so much that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. So I pray that you would do that now, and and we love you and thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want to start with this question. Don't answer out loud, just think about this. What is religion? What is religion? We live in a society where um, the idea of religion is kind of, in some ways... Under attack in other ways, certain religions are attacking other religions. And we, we hear a lot of talk about religious lines and things in our culture. You may hear people say, 
I don't believe in organized religion, things like that. Religion is, 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 is a buzzword in our culture, even though it may be under attack from some. It's, it's popular. You look in the news, it would be almost impossible to read the news any day of the week and not see something that relates to religion in our world. Um, Webster defines it like this. The service and worship of God or the supernatural. Commitment or devotion to religious faith or observance. Or a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. So let's think about that for a second. Because there are many major religions in the world and probably even more minor religions that we don't even know of. I mean, if you, if you take these, this definition, anybody can invent their own religion at any time they want. And, and people do this. But, so there are many religions. And, and when we begin to think of this, I'm sure we think of... Religions like Islam, like Judaism, like Roman Catholicism, like Buddhism, um, and then, of course, Christianity. Now, I know that if you're a Christian, you've probably been trained to say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, and I, and I know what that means, and I agree. But by definition, Christianity is a religion. Scripture even talks about Religion that is pure and undefiled, that, that this is religion. So the question is, what do all these things have in common as religions? Um, although some of them are worlds apart in how they believe, there's something that all religions have in common. And that is the definition. They all have some sort of beliefs or practices that they follow to help them the person makes sense of or establish themselves in relation to God or a God or a group of gods or enlightenment or the supernatural or spirituality or nirvana or so on. So all religions have this in common. Um, even those who say that they don't believe in organized religion and even atheists or agnostics have a set of beliefs that they, they, they hold to to help them make sense of the idea of God. Even the people who say, I don't believe in God, well, that's still their belief about God or, or a higher power or whatever it may be. So, all of that to say, every person on earth has some sort of theology. Every person is a theologian from, uh, at, in, in some way. Every person, it does not matter who they are, they have some sort of way that they in their mind cope with the idea of God or a God, a group of gods, a higher power, whatever it may be, the, the supernatural, that, that which is not what we can see. Even if you think of the agnostic, who to me seems like um, the one who might be excluded, but even an agnostic says... There's no way that we as human beings can know anything about God if He's out there. Well, even that is a belief that says God is outside of what we can think. So that is a theology about God. So every person has a theology. And, and so, um, so we've got to understand that every person in some form or fashion has a theology that is 
religious in nature. Some way, every person has to deal with the question, who is God or what is God or what may, what is God to you? Even we always, in America, we always like to think of those in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa who've never heard the name of Jesus, but they still worship Something They've never heard of God. No Western person has ever. There are unreached people groups in the world now. And they still, in some way, either worship the sun or the moon or the clouds or the trees or they will form a God. Nobody's ever taught them they have to worship. They just do because every human being has some sort of theology ingrained in them that, that makes them worship something. They have some sort of set of beliefs about God. Um... As Christians, we believe that what the Bible says about God is true about God. Um, We believe that this book is the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error. It does not contradict itself in any way, shape, or form. And what this book says about God is true about God. this This is how we Christians know about our God. And the Bible teaches us that someday, if we are truly Christians, we will actually be with God. There will come a time when the idea of faith will exist no more. We will see what we have believed in. In this verse, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God encapsulates the final end to which all Christianity leads. Every bit of it leads to being present with the Lord, face to face, seeing our great God and Savior and being with Him forever. That's where we're going to. And this is what it says, For they shall see God. 1 John 3, 2, I think this should be up there. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. In Revelation 21.3, of course, this final picture of the end of everything we, we read in Scripture. says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. See, for Christians, these very words are the hope that we cling to. I mean, everything that we're doing is leading to this. And these words and the picture that they paint, they should thrill us. They should drive us and encourage us and empower us because... He's given us things to do. He's given us what seems like an impossible task. But when we read the end, it will be done and we will be with Him forever. It it is done. And so it should empower us to strive towards what God has called us to do. Now, that's the end. But if we go back to the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They could be with Him. There was nothing separating them from Him. And then, of course, after the fall, sin came between them, drove that wedge in between humanity and God forever. And that includes us. We are separated from God forever. And we read in Genesis 3 that the son or the seed of evil crushed the head of Satan. 
And then the entire Bible, every page of this, is the unfolding of how God made it, reconciled us back to Him. Page three, we're separated from Him. Last page, we're back with Him. That's, this book is all about that. And so every page that we read is a peek into redemptive history. And it leads up to that picture in Revelation 21 where God will be with us. Us and we will be with him and we will know him. He will be our God and we will be his people. So as you can see, when you when when you read this, blessed with pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you just skim over it real quick, you're not gonna you you don't catch that stuff. But we can see that there's so much more in this verse if we just sit and think about it. And so this verse calls us to look forward to the final end of everything we're working for. And leading us to that final end is this statement. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. That statement right there gives an answer to a question that has been on the hearts of especially Christians, but humanity from the beginning of time. How can we see God? How can we know God or a God or the gods or the supernatural? How can we get there? For Christians, it is how can I see God? How can I experience God? How can I know God? And Jesus says, the pure in heart shall see God. That's the ones who will see God. Now, I would hope, and I don't doubt that everybody here hopes to someday see God, be with God, live with God forever. And so if we're going to get there, then we've got to understand what it means to be pure in heart. If we are going to attain to purity of heart and in so doing, see God someday, well, then we've got to know what it means, right? It's gotta, we've got to get this. This is important. We've got to get this. And so that's where we're going. We've got to understand what God requires of us. So, blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? I think it helps... In, in beginning to understand this, if we, if, we, if we look at this phrase the same way that we learned the other Beatitudes so far. We've, we've, we've kind of been on a journey and we've said from the very beginning that every one of these Beatitudes, from verse 3 to verse 10, every one of the Beatitudes, these are spiritual characteristics of spiritual people. They're not naturally produced. If a man or a woman thinks that they have achieved this purity of heart with their own doing, their own efforts, then they have mistaken. They, they don't have it because only the Holy Spirit of God can create this. So we think of um, the monks in monasteries in the Himalayan mountains who have completely secluded themselves from the secular world. They don't see TV. They don't hear the radio. They don't hear, they don't hear outside music. They don't read outside literature. They have completely rid themselves of anything secular. And it seems like their heart might be as pure as a heart could be. But what they've done is they have taken it upon themselves to do that. It's not produced by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. And so they don't have it. So these are spiritual truths. That's got to be our starting point. Spiritual truths for a spiritual people. It's spiritual purity, not physical. So we can conclude that when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, He's not talking about this muscle in my chest that pumps blood. 
He's not talking about the anatomical heart. So we've got to get that. He's not saying, blessed are those whose muscle that pumps blood is clean and wiped off. That's not what he's saying. When, this is your spiritual heart. And almost every single time in Scripture when it talks about the heart inside of a human being, it's talking about the center of everything that makes you, you. Everything, your personality, your emotions, your your will, your intellect, everything is, is inside of that heart, that wellspring of everything that makes you, you. You can put two human beings side by side. If you take away everything that's physical, what are they? That's their heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, so it's the, the center of that emotional Spiritual, intellect, will, everything, your personality, that's your heart. So Jesus did not say, blessed are the pure in intellect. He's not talking about people who are just have a purity of theology or knowledge. I only know this, this type of things and I know it very well. He's not talking about just knowledge, but we can't separate and disregard knowledge. Because it all goes into one thing. If you think about it, a heart... That is completely pure and focused, but is absent of intellect, can be pushed and swayed in any which way. Whatever seems right in a moment, that heart will latch onto if they don't have the intellect to know right from wrong. I've used this example before because I could say, man, it really does my, it makes me feel so comfortable. Every morning when I go outside and I get in my car and I crank it up and I can, I can head anywhere in the country because I'm just safe and secure knowing that I'm in a good, solid, Japanese-made automobile. Everybody knows they make good cars. They're not going to tear up. And if they do, you can fix them cheap. It's a good, it's a good car. And it just, I'm just comfortable driving to work. I don't have to worry about it. I never have to worry if my car is going to break down. I'm just comfortable in my car. Well, anybody who knows anything about cars would say, hey, hey, uh. You know, your car is made by Chevrolet, right? That's an American car. Well, here, all this time, I've been so comfortable. And I really was emotionally felt safe. But my intellect was off. And so my comfort, my whatever I was resting in was not real. It was fake. I just made it up out of ignorance. So people can do this. If we separate our intellect from our heart, our emotions, we can feel so safe and ready and right. But if our intellect is off... It's not, it's not there. It's not true knowledge. So you can't separate these things. It's the source of all of your intellect as well as your emotions, your personality, everything. Your will, all of it. That's your heart. And Jesus says they are blessed who are pure in this heart. This, excuse me, this center of personality, of, of mind, of will and emotions. Purity of that. So what does that look like? What does it mean to be pure in your heart? The word pure carries with it a couple different ideas. And I think when we, when we put them together, it helps us to hone in on what Jesus means. So first of all, pure means completely unified. So like all together, unified, totally undivided, wholly devoted. It carries with it the idea of singleness of focus or in its most basic form, one. Purity, one, single, like, like a laser beam, a one-track focus, unwavering from point A to point B, nothing in between, it's just pure. And the second 
connotation of this word pure is probably what comes to most of our minds when we think pure. That's like clean, undefiled, um, free of impurities. That's what we think of when we think of pure. You think of pure water. It's water that doesn't have stuff floating around in it. Um, so we put these two ideas together and we couple, couple them with, with the, the spiritual nature of the Beatitudes, what we already know about the heart, and we see what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the ones who are blessed are the ones who are completely unified, totally undivided, wholly devoted, entirely free from any impurity in their soul, their being. It's the purity Means it, this purity means that the center of this person's personality, emotions, intellect, and will are completely and totally unified and focused toward God and free from any and all impurities that might stand to obstruct this laser-like focus to God or toward God, toward glorifying God. Nothing stands in the way. Nothing is fighting for attention. Nothing. It's one track mind, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 100%, no failing. I'm glorifying God with everything I'm doing. That's what it means to be pure in heart. And this is what God requires of us. He requires this kind of purity of heart. I think it's interesting when you draw the connections between the first three Beatitudes and these last few. You see a couple of things like if you're truly poor in spirit, like verse 3, then you will be merciful toward other people, like verse 7. In the same way, if you, will, if you mourn because of your sin, because of your impurities, because of your imperfections, because of your waywardness of focus, if you mourn because you fall short of the glory of God, you will seek to rid yourself of those Impurities. You will try to attain to purity of heart. You see how that works. So, And God requires this of every single human being that has ever lived and will ever live. He requires our hearts to be this way. And in, 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 when our hearts that way, we act a certain way. Romans 2.13 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we've talked about this, justified, made right before God. That's what we're seeking, right? We want to be righteous before God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Paul says, okay, you want to be righteous? Just do the law. You've got it. Feel free. Obey the law. Do what God says do, and you're fine. So many in our culture have misunderstood the the application of the law in the Old Testament to New Testament Christians. People are so quick to say, wait a second, no, we're not under the law anymore. We can, we're not under that. That's the law. No, not the law. We're, we live under grace. That's Old Testament. So if I believe that, then I'm saying, okay, so for New Testament Christians, there's no standard for living. There's, I can lie and steal and commit adultery and covet and make false gods if I want to. I can worship, uh, worship other idols. Of course not. We, don't, we would never say that. There is a standard of living for Christians. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and then 11, Paul says this. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
And then verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So no, we're not under the law as in it stands to condemn us to hell because we can't do it. But we are required to obey the Ten Commandments every day. We are required to obey the law. And like we've seen, the ones who do this are the ones who will be justified, made right before God. So God simply requires... Complete and total, undivided, wholly committed, unified focus and worship of Him and Him alone in the innermost part of our being, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, without waver, without falter, all the time. And if we do this, if we attain to purity of heart, we will see God. That's what it says, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to just look at the first two commandments and and kind of help us understand what God requires of us. The first four commandments um, encapsulate how human beings should respond to God. And then the last six are our relationship relationship with other people. So the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. So God at the very outset of the Ten Commandments says there must not be any gods in addition to me. I am the only God. I must be the only focus of all of your affections. And then he goes on in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So he goes on to make it very clear that there is no room to have God Grouped in with other gods. No polytheism. No, I'm, you, you, He says don't make any gods. Don't try to make any image of a god. Don't even try to make an image of what you think I look like. Because God is spirit. We can't see God. So if you're making something that you think God looks like, that's a false idol. Another way that we do this. It goes back to what I was talking about earlier about separating the intellect from the emotions. Is we can be... So comfortable and so happy and so peaceful in God and resting in God and worshiping God. And we can worship and sing songs about God and tell other people about God. But if you don't read this book, you do not know God. This is the only way you're going to know Him. So what? So let's go back to our logic. If we know this, then what, what is this I feel? I mean, I feel like I'm a Christian. I feel like I know who God is. I feel so comfortable. I love singing songs. You have invented a false God in your mind that you're worshiping. You might as well get a chainsaw and carve a tree stump into a God and worship it because you're just making a false God if you do not read this book. This is the only way we can know God. This is how He's revealed Himself. And so, God says you... There will be no other gods besides me. As a matter of fact, he says elsewhere in scripture, Jesus quoted, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Him only. He's saying, I require allegiance. Don't try to group me in with your other gods. This is what the Israelites did. They had all these other gods, but then there was also Yahweh. And he said, it's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, God would rather give us over to false idols and perish in eternity than to be worshipped beside other gods. He's not going to have it. And that's what he requires. 
He's not going to be grouped into other gods. There cannot be any wavering at all. It's got to be God and God alone forever. So in those days it was. It was wooden idols. It was gold idols. It was the gods of the other nations. In our day it can be anything under the sun that might draw away our attention from the one true God for a second. Anything. Even good things. It can be family. It can be friends. It can be your job. It can be your hobbies. It can be television. Anything in the world that would vie for your attention and try to turn your worship away from God for a second, that can become a false God. And God will not be grouped into a pile of gods. He's not running for God in your life. There is no election. It's not like we get to decide He is God. He, will, he requires that we worship Him as such. That It's not a vote. He's God. You either worship Him or you worship everything else. And He says, if you're going to try to group me in, I'd rather you just go worship everything else and perish than to try to group me in. Now, this truth is hard for us. Um, this truth has turned away the likes of Oprah Winfrey. Brad Pitt said he couldn't deal with this. Um, C.S. Lewis, before he was saved, said that when he would read the Psalms, God sounded like a nagging old lady begging for compliments. Worship me, worship me, praise me. He couldn't stand it because this is this, it grinds against us. And then, of course, his testimony is that he got on a city bus one day after he was... He was Dealing with these things, got on a city bus one day, a lost person, and got off saved. Because he, it snapped. If he's God, if he really is God, then he can require that, and he can hold us to that, and we can't say anything. Because he's God. And so this is what purity of heart is. This is what God requires of us if we would see him. But there are a couple problems. I hope you have realized as you're thinking about this, like I'm... We're set up for failure. The first one being that when when we begin to think religiously, that is, when we begin to think in a way for ourselves as human beings to attain to that spiritual level or to please God, to serve God, to make God happy, even as monotheistic Christians who worship Yahweh, our gravity, our, our, we tend to gravitate towards the teachings of all the other world religions. We, we, we suck these things in. We read purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. But we hear moral uprightness. We hear, oh, okay, i got to be pure. i got to be pure. So we connect to purity and knowing God to a systematic approach to make myself good. Moral transformation. Okay, I gotta be pure. Okay, I gotta be pure. So, so I need to stop thinking about this and stop thinking about this and don't read this and don't watch this. Don't hang out with these people. In other words, we just say, okay, got it. Got to act better. Purity of heart. Want to see God? Got to act better. And we've already said that Jesus didn't say, "Blessed are the pure in mind or intellect," but He also didn't say, "Blessed are the pure in actions and conduct." He's, see, we are so easily swayed towards hearing. This righteous requirement of the law of God and we try to make moral adjustments and just act better. We want to, if I could just act a little better, then God will be happy, He will be pleased, and I can make it. This is exactly what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. See, they didn't care very much about the heart. They They were looking at what everybody else was doing outwardly. It was a show. And Jesus comes with a completely different message. And in weeks to come, as we study what he taught in the rest of this sermon, 
we'll see that Jesus took this law that they had made completely about outward show, looking decent. And he took that law as a spike and drove it into their hearts, deep, deep, deep into their hearts to where all of a sudden lust was adultery. All of a sudden now hatred is murder. All of a sudden turning or, or an eye for an eye becomes turn the other cheek. See, Jesus and this kingdom that he brought, that he preaches, focuses on the heart. It is all about the heart. It's in here. What's going on in here? Why are you doing what you're doing? What is the motivation? Who cares if you're acting right if this is not changed? And you may be, may be able to muster up a little outward show and act like something for a time, but if your heart's not transformed, it's useless. It's a waste. Another a mistake that we do is, is that we make is we assume that with enough go get them attitude that we can just bring ourselves to God. Like I, and many people think that they should just merely aspire to purity of heart. This is very closely related. That if I just pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and do the, just do this, I can make myself pure. This goes back to those monks. I've got to be pure, so let me get away from everything in the world that keeps me from being pure. You know, or I've got to go, go on a hiking trip and get away from all this stuff and get along with God so that I can clear my mind. There's only one problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says... That the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In Matthew 15, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. See, our hearts are deceitful and sick. They are. Our hearts are the wellspring of every sinful act. Even if you can muster up a few obedient actions, Paul says in Romans 3.20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Wait a second. Paul just said a minute ago, we just read, if we obey the law, we can be made right with God. And then he says... By works of the law, nobody can be made right with God. It's because the heart is not changed. You don't just do it. There's got to be a heart transformation. We have to be changed from the inside out. So Jesus is saying that those who would see God will have to be pure in heart. Those who are completely devoted, wholly unified in heart toward God and God alone, but Paul teaches our hearts are evil. Our hearts are the worst thing about us. Our hearts are blackened with sin and wickedness. There's simply no way that we can be pure in heart. There's no way that we can do it. We have been set up for failure because we cannot do it. Not only can we not do good, Colossians 2.13 says we're dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1 says you were dead in trespasses and sin. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sin. Dead people don't bring themselves to God. It just doesn't happen. Dead people aren't waving their arms in the ocean for a life preserver. That is the gospel. Nope. Dead people aren't on life support. Dead people are dead. Dead people are on the bottom of the ocean. Dead people have already had the sheet pulled over their face. They're done. 
So we understand that if we're dead in our sins apart from Christ, but God requires purity of heart, this requirement is completely unattainable for us. Completely. We can't do it. We cannot see God. Not only are we not good enough, and not only are we spiritually dead, Romans 8, 7, 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So we have been laid out two options. Choose sin or choose sin. And you want to try to choose God. It's not an option. You cannot please God. It cannot submit to God's law. We cannot please God. So the question is, well, then what do we do? What, what, how can we do anything about this? If God requires purity of heart... But our hearts are dead in sin and completely incapable of doing this. Then what can we do? That's the question. Everybody wants to know, right? What am I supposed to do now that I've realized, Paul, you showed me from Scripture. I'm dead in sin. And then there's a requirement that I can't even meet. Then what do I do? And here's the answer. And the question is not so much what do I do, but the, the question is what can be done. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. This is God talking to his people. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is God speaking of what He will do for His disobedient children. Notice how many times we see God doing something and how many times it shows us doing something. God takes out the dead heart. God puts in the new heart. God puts in His His Spirit. God causes us to walk in His ways. God causes us to be careful to obey His rules. God is active in this and we are just recipients. We just receive. I just say... I'm broken, I'm sinful, I can't do anything, I understand that I can't do anything, and I want to receive. That's the only option we have. Philippians 2.13 is another one. It says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Notice again, God's action and our inaction. He works in us, not only to be able to work for His good pleasure, but the very will to do so comes from Him. He works in us. So you're asking How can this be? How does this happen? If I simply receive and God is active, then what am I supposed to do? How can we, what, I mean, mean, we're at a standstill. Nicodemus asked the same question in John 3. Because him and Jesus were talking and Nicodemus is like, how can I be saved? Or how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, unless a man is born again... He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, well, how can an old man go back into his mother and be born again? That doesn't make sense. And he says, no, it's born of the Spirit, Nicodemus. You've got to be born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, well, how can that happen? How can... And Jesus says, see how the wind blows? Nobody knows where it comes from or where it goes. You can feel it go by. You can hear it. We can even see branches move. But I don't know this breeze that's going through my clothes. I don't know where it stopped on that end or where it started over here. He said, that's how it works. 
That's exactly how the Holy Spirit saves people. That's exactly what happens in regeneration and rebirth. God's Spirit is the sole agent in our salvation. God elects. Jesus purchases. The Holy Spirit applies it to the heart. And we just receive. You just receive. See, we have have been conditioned in this culture. We've been taught. Here's what you got to do. Just walk down an aisle. Just walk down an old-fashioned aisle and get in, kneel at an old-fashioned altar and pray to an old-fashioned God and say an old-fashioned prayer. We've taught all this stuff and Jesus said, look at how the wind blows. You're not making it blow. We're not trying to blow the wind on people. It just, it just happens. Paul summarizes it like this in Romans 8. For what God has done. Don't forget that. For God has done. God has done. God has done. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see that righteous requirement of the law. We've already talked about that. God requires holy, holy devoted people, undivided, not wavering like a tractor beam focused on God. That's the requirement and we can't do it. And this says, for God has done it. He has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in Jesus. It was completely unattainable. And God has made it not only attainable, but He just gives it freely to anybody who will receive it. He just gives it. Jesus has done the work. He lived a totally devoted life, unadulterated, focused on God the whole time. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He just kept on walking, looking at God. We can't do it. He done it. So we just say, I trust in Jesus. Jesus done it. I have to rest in his his work for me. That's the gospel. If you're going to share the gospel with somebody, that's what it is. Jesus done it. And we just receive it. And look what we get because... Of Jesus' sacrificial life and death for us. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. See those of us who trust in Jesus. And in his death on the cross for us. We will see God. With our eyeballs. See God. First we'll see him now. We can get a glimpse of God now in this life. You say how can I do it? I just want to see God. Well, First of all the Bible says he's revealed himself in creation. We can go outside and look at a tree or a leaf or a stream or the clouds or the stars. And we all know this as Christians. We, we get together and we hear people say, when we're with one another, we'll be standing around and we'll say, Man, I just love looking at creation. How could anybody look at this and not know that there's a God? Not believe that there's a God? This tree grew out of a seed this big and it's huge. And we just say it was an accident. I breathe air that makes my body work that came out of that tree that grew out of the ground. How can there not be a God? This is how we think. We can see God in the things that He's created. His divine attributes are clearly shown. We also see Him, as we've already said, as He's revealed Himself in His Word, the Bible. This is how we know God. This is His Word to us. And when we read the pages of Holy Scripture, this is not... We don't just go to this to get a pick-me-up to get me through the day. This is not tips on, for living. This is not some hints on how you can do better. This is how we know God. This is God's revelation to us. This is about God, specifically about Jesus, bringing us back to God. This is not 
the, so many things that we make it up to be. It's not about us. It's about God. We read this and we can see who God is. And we also can see who God is through Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. So we read through scripture and we gaze upon the life and the death of Jesus and, and the resurrection of Jesus. We can see God, although it is through a glass dimly. It's not just right. It's not how we want it to be. But we can see these things here on earth. And you say, wait a second, lost people can go outside and look at creation and not be Christians. Lost people can read the Bible. Do they not see God? And the answer is no, they don't. They don't see Him. They look at creation and they say, well, see, this could this evolved from this and this and this could happen to this. And it happened over billions of years and there's no proof of it. But I just have to trust this because there can't be a God. They read the Bible and it's just mumbo jumbo. I just don't get it. I mean, how do you, I just, I just read this and I'm just confused and so hard to understand and, and they don't get it. The Bible says the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds where they can't see God. They do not see God. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross is offensive to people who don't cling to it for salvation. So they can't see but to those of us to whom God has revealed Himself, we are able to experience God here, now. We know Him. We walk with Him every day. We trust in Him. We read His Word. We, it's just living and active to us. Not only that, but we will see Jesus face to face for eternity. And we began with those passages. I'm going to read them again. Revelation 21.3. It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. No, no longer through a dimly lit glass We'll see Him just like He is. And because we see Him like He is, we will finally be like He is. Now we look in His Word and we gaze upon God. And as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Transform, transform, transform. But finally, we're going to see Him face to face and all the transformation's done. It's boom, we're like Jesus. Someday. But not yet. So we'll spend eternity in face-to-face -face communion with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is huge. Because we read about Him, we talk about Him, we're going to get to be with Him forever. We'll sit with Him and talk with Him and eat with Him and share stories with Him. And He's going to be like, I've heard that one before. I knew it. I made it happen. He will be our God and we will be His people forever. See, the glory of eternity, everybody likes to think about heaven and walking the streets of gold and going through the pearly gates. That's not the glory of, of heaven. The glory of heaven is being with Jesus and never losing sight of Jesus forever. We'll be with Him forever. I'm going to read 1 John 3 again. I'm going to go one more verse this time. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. 
So when we hope in Jesus, we cling to Jesus and we long for that moment to see Jesus and we claim Jesus' life and death and resurrection as the sacrifice for our sins. We claim His purification for us. It's given to us. We're sanctified daily to be made to look like Him more and more. And it's that hoping, that hoping for Him that purifies us. That's how it happens. It is this hungering and thirsting after Him that satisfies us, that makes us righteous before God. And because of this, we are truly blessed people. We are joyfully happy, no matter what happens on this earth, because I can look forward and say, I've got a hope waiting for me. I'm going to see Jesus. It's hard now, but I'm going to see Jesus. Now, I know that our tendency is to make heaven our focus all the time. We only sing songs about heaven and want to be in heaven. And like the song says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We want to be in heaven so bad that we completely forget what God's given us to do here. We can experience God now. And He's given us work to do. So if you're a Christian, this the beauty of this and knowing that this is true is, is, is this. I can walk out here and I can share the gospel with every person I come in contact with. And it does not matter if I screw up and say the right thing. If I, if I jumble up, if I get my presentation wrong. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus said, you see how the wind blows? No, you don't. The Holy Spirit does it. You just do what you've been told to do. Just share the gospel and He will save His people. So we can trust Him that we hope in that. And not only that, but we know that we're going to see Him. When all said and done, there will be people from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth worshiping the Lamb on the throne. He's going to do it. He will redeem His people. The question is, are you going to do what He's told you to do? And that is, go. And make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them all that I have commanded. We teach people about Jesus. So that's the hope for Christians. We don't have to worry if, if we're going to fail. Because it's done. It's as good as done. For non-Christians, you've been set up to... You, you re- Hopefully, you realize, okay, I see what God requires. And I can't do it. And so, you just receive You just pray, God, forgive me of my sin. I realize that I have failed and I cannot save myself. And I repent. I trust Jesus. Give me Jesus. I claim Jesus. Whatever he's done, just give that to me. And God says, it's yours. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus in that instant. So I'm going to close in prayer. And... um, for Christians, I know we, we hear this stuff and, and we, we consistently feel like we, we, we know we don't share the gospel like we should. We know we don't read the Bible like we should. So repent. Ask God to help you to do these things. If you're a lost person, you can pray in your seat and receive Jesus as your Savior. Remember, it's just see. It's not a, it's not a special prayer. It's not special words. It's not a mantra. It's just, just crying out to your Father.